0: Like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at LaserApp.com, L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP two zero two one for fifteen percent off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast. This week you have me, Dave, and you have Leo. Hello. Our guest this week is a former Marine, current law enforcement, and looking to increase his place in the world of practical shooting. Let's welcome Matthew Nash to the show. Hey, Matt.
1: Hey, how's it going, guys? Thanks for having me.
0: Good. Thanks for being on. Why don't you go ahead and take a second and introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, I thought you uh, summed it up. Uh, prior Marines, so Semper Fi, I uh, love Simplified. the shirt you're wearing today. Thank you much. Um, I got out of the Marine Corps uh, in 2004, just after 9-11. Um, my team was a little bit involved in, in some of the early on operations after our president said, let's roll. And uh, I got out. I wanted to go to school. Um, I did protection my last year in the Marine Corps, uh, mainly to get me back overseas uh, because we had just finished our deployment and was the only thing open. And I, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, And while I was in school, Secret Service kind of put a bug in my ear about the civilian side. Um, I was going through that process and then the Pentagon Operations, or Pentagon Force Protection Agency, um, kind of recruited me and has really just given me an amazing opportunity to grow in that agency. And I'm still close to the Department of Defense and the military. I work every day at the, the Pentagon. Uh, and I've had, I've never wanted to leave. You know, I, I, it's bittersweet when you get out of the Marine Corps, you miss it immediately. You know, you miss that camaraderie. And the connection that I've had been able to maintain in law enforcement with DOD has just been priceless to me. And, you know, what they say, if, if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. And that's kind of how I've been living the American dream there. Um, we obviously just had a fallen soldier, George uh, Gonzalez. Um, so i you know, been working with our department on kind of overcoming that recent challenge, um, but shout out to his family. Uh, I just want to give some prayers really quick to all of them. Uh, New York took care of us. Well, uh, he was buried last week. So, um, but yeah, so I, I do personal protection now for the department of defense. Um, I help protect the undersecretaries of defense as one of their key personal security advisors. I have an amazing team of agents and officers that I work with every day and that same kind of Marine Corps camaraderie. Um, And that's kind of what got me in shooting. So I don't want to kind of expand on that right now. I think we're going to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, coming out of the Marine Corps, you know, especially like yourself and some elite units, all we do is train, right? We're like professional athletes. And that's one of the things that we do a lot. And it was just unfamiliar to me in law enforcement. You don't get to train to that level. Uh, And my standards were up here. And, you know, law enforcement, unfortunately, they just have a lot to cover down on and, and very limited resources. So we just don't get that much time. So I found USPSA and competitive shooting mainly to augment my practice for my job. Um, and then the competitive side hit in the community and, and the friendships and the, the story is kind of progressing from there.
0: Yeah. All right. All right. So Matt, we normally do a, well, we, we ask some personal questions to get to know our guest. I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before.
1: Uh, if so, I, I have. Okay. Every eight is uh, representing pretty strong lately.
0: Yeah, of course. Yep. All right. So we're going to start off with those five questions. What's your yep. favorite movie?
1: Favorite movie has to be round rounders. Um, you know, it's a movie about, uh, uh stakes poker just kind of a, a classic um, kind of talks about you know close friends and team and then you know the pursuit of following your dreams in a way um, just was a classic to me so yeah very good there, there's a lot of a lot of good ones to choose from but I'll, I'll go with kind of a classic there okay I don't think I've ever heard of it
2: oh, oh. Dan, you have to watch this pay that man his money yes, oh, man. <laughs> so good so you'll be walking Chick, up Chick, the Chick, stages Chick, Chick. With, with Oreos on, on a rack saying this yeah. is going to be a stage win. <laughs> stage win. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. You got to watch it. It's <laughs> well, a very good I, choice.
0: I'm intrigued now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Favorite book. Um. So I'll give
1: two. I, I love Simon Sinek. Um, he's on TED videos. He's an inspirational speaker. Big on leadership coming from the Marine Corps and in law enforcement. And he wrote a book. <laughs> called uh great eaters eat last and if you aren't hooked on the beginning story he tells which you can also watch him tell it online um but he talks about a marine uh warfighter uh in a valley protecting marines in a, in a war um um in a um shoot i just forgot the name of the aircraft but what are their aircraft they uh the Warhog, or not Warhog? A-10. a-10 a-10 10 yeah yep Tank And they're in the valleys uh, protecting a squad. And all of a sudden they hear, you know, troops in contact and they're getting ambushed. Um, And the pilots, there's two pilots circling off Cloud coverage is very, very low. They're using outdated maps. um, And it's very risky. Pretty much they know if they go there and provide cover that it's not going to be easy to come back up. And it's a tight valley. So the the one pilot, the leader of the two says, we're going down. Um, So they go down. And the way they do it is they count. Uh, so they come down and they don't they know the train's going to close in on them so they got to get down lay the fire and come back up into the clouds so the leader takes his co-pilot down and they go one one thousand two one thousand they lay down fire and five thousand they pull up and they just miss the the mountains right so they do this two more times and the lead pilot runs out of ammunition and he says you got to get down there and provide cover and he says i don't think i can do it and he says i'll take you down i'll count for you Long story short, I don't I don't want to ruin the book, but it's a great story. You got to hear Simon Sinek tells it and he goes down and he leads his pilot. Every single Marine walked out of that valley. And if if you kind of look at the operation and you study it there, there should have been no way there was no casualties. And so Simon Sinek says, hey, you took your plane down there. You pretty much knew you were going to crash. Like you made a conscious choice saying we're probably not going to come out of this valley, but we're going to lay down some fire. Why did you do it? And the whole book is about that in leadership. And it it talks about leadership and doing something, giving all you have for others. And I can't think of a greater hook in a book. And he he explores that. And we all use leadership in in our daily lives. And I think it's just very inspirational. Uh, The quick, the second book I got to talk about that's an unknown is called Tiger Trap. It's just a fascinating story. I can't believe they haven't made a movie about it yet. It's about an FBI agent in Washington, D.C., that uncovers, well, California, and D.C., that uncovers a Chinese spy, ends up having an, uh, flipping that spy to work for the United States. The spy ends up having an affair with that FBI agent, right? So a double spy now turning our FBI against us, right, to recruit. Then an FBI uh, special agent in charge finds this out and starts running an investigation on that FBI agent, but then gets hooked and has an affair with the same Chinese spy. I mean, you can't make this up, right? I mean, if this was in the movies, they're going to be like, oh, that's fake. You know, that would never happen. Um, So it's a fascinating story. It actually ties in the Pentagon because that Chinese uh, spy was a handler for some contractors in the Pentagon. uh, Some friends that I know that helped work that uh, investigation. And and it's just, it's very fascinating. I can't believe there's not a movie on it, but it's a great read. Not fictional, but you're going to feel like it is. Uh, So it's called Tiger Trap by David Wise.
0: Where does Eric Swallow fit into all this? I'm sorry? Where does Eric Swallow fit into all of this?
1: Yes, it's true. (laughs) David
0: Wise, you said?
1: David Wise. You'll see a red cover with the dragon on it. Tiger Trap.
2: Okay. But real quick, to go back to that first one, uh, I watched the TED Talk where he talked about that mission. It, It is extremely compelling. So yeah. I'm now I'm gonna have to read the book. Yeah, um, an
1: amazing book. Um, I I had a couple copies. I keep giving them out to people. It, I mean, it's something you can kind of keep. I'll get my own. I reading. promise. Yeah. Yep. Uh,
0: I'm gonna have to stop asking this question because I think I'm up to like 47 books I have to read now. I know. I, know. <laughs> I have, I have like pages of notes up. of like,
2: oh, that sounds interesting.
0: I know. I got to read this one. I got to read this one. Oh, good <laughs>
1: okay. lord! Unracks and book racks. That's gonna be your backdrop. <laughs> there
0: you go. All right, this is uh, the Huggy special. Who Huggy is, I have no idea, but his favorite superhero.
1: You know, growing up, I liked Wolverine. I don't know why as a kid. It kind of stuck. Those were the comics that were kind of in my area at the time, and he was hitting mainstream, so I'm partial to my childhood, so Wolverine. Okay.
0: Favorite gun and caliber. Now, you can have a favorite gun— like a 1911, but your favorite caliber could be 6.5 Creedmoor. It doesn't have to be the same.
1: That's true. Um, you know, probably the CZ SPO one Target was still probably my favorite gun. Um, I sold that to Wampler, never should have. Um, I And, you know, he actually beat me in a match when I sold that to him.
2: But uh, oh.
1: he probably doesn't remember that, but. Uh, I don't know. That's my favorite. I wish I could have it back, but you know, I run the the Shadow Two right now, and I love it just as much. Um, and, and nine millimeters, probably my favorite caliber. Although, not enjoying the pricing right now.
0: No.
2: Yeah, yeah. at all.
0: Definitely not. All right. So here's the one question unique to you, um, and I've asked this to a couple of the other military people. What was your favorite memory, duty station, or deployment
1: while in the Marines? That's a good one. I was on for that. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you think you would talk about like an operation or something, but some of my memories are just kind of like my group of friends now, just jokesters, you know, and, um, you know, <laughs> I, I have some funny ones. Um, you know, I'll, 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 uh, I'll censor it for this show. Probably, probably my favorite, memory um was just just kind of going to italy with a bunch of the marines you know we, we were uh, after 9-11 we were on and off ships in the mediterranean and we were stationed on naples italy which was just an amazing experience um prior to that i went to cuba so it wasn't really a deployment it was more training but italy was probably my first time going overseas and um that's probably my favorite memory and, and what it instilled in me you know, there's a little bit of culture and understanding that the world's much bigger than the United States. And uh, I'm going to segue that into something that I wish USPSA would do more, and, and that is promote international matches. You know, I had the opportunity to go to uh, the Extreme Euro a couple years back with Mason Lane, Watson Kim, and Casey Reed um, and, and, and some others. And that was an amazing experience. Um, the camaraderie extends. The camaraderie that we know in USPSA is the same in Ipswich. If not more, because they appreciate you coming over there to their country and shooting a match, and and then getting to walk the streets, go get ice cream with those guys, and, and laugh afterwards. You know, I would say it's the same. You know, just you know, my memory in the Marine Corps is just traveling abroad and meeting different people and meeting the world, and and uh, that's something that I plan to pass down to my kids. Something that I still got to get my mom to go overseas. She's never been left the United States, so I'm like, we're doing it this year. I'm gonna try and take it to the world shoot to Thailand. Um, so I'm kind of disappointed it was push, but yeah. Uh,
0: I'm, all right. I, I have a bunch of questions, but I'm going to pause right there because I want to, I really like some of the things that I see uh, coming out of Europe on social media with their ipsic stuff. <clears throat> Can you go take a minute and just explain the differences you saw shooting extreme Euro versus even a nationals or a major over here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There, there was a lot. Um, and just so you guys know, I didn't talk about this, but I've been shooting USPSA for six years, roughly around the time I went through my first international match, um, pretty competitively. I shoot about fifteen majors a year, all over the country, pretty much as as much as my family can help me out with, because it's a big time commitment, right? Um, and so I have a good knowledge. I've worked Area Eight before. By the way, I saw you had Sai and. And Van on, on the line, they're, they're throwing one of the best area matches because they're taking a lot of input for um, You know, Not just the format, but the stage design, thinking about what skills we want to test and have a broad range of skills tested, right? Uh, but there's a lot to be said for that. And Mason Lane and I, well, mainly Mason Lane's working on a, uh, a book, but we, we had talked about that, saying someone needs to put some knowledge out there to help people understand how to test skills at a high level. And we feel that's where it starts with IPSC is every stage has a purpose. You can kind of tell what they're testing. And then there's some things that will surprise you that you make the little notes saying, I need to work on this. Right. They, they, they taught me, you know, they really tested me on soft exits and I didn't see that coming on the stage, but that was the key Um, or something like that. You know, that's an exit where maybe you're you're, you're not just planning, you got to shoot and get out quickly. So Uh, The first thing that I noticed right up front was the professionalism of the staff, right? And, and I know, I'm pretty sure their staff's not paid. uh, But one of the things that they did do was really cool that I thought we could probably look at in USPSA is they partnered with some local youth in their region. And this was in check. And I don't know if they get free, you know, range uh, dues or something like that, but they had two or three kids on every stage and their job was to reset steel and, and, and uh and spray paint it and it was how they did it they did it very very fast it was almost like a competition to them um so the stages ran very smooth because of that um i noticed at one point because you don't paste in europe um and ipsic most matches you don't pace you just sit there stages are reset probably in under two minutes uh, i mean and they're you know long bays and stuff it's amazing it's a well-oiled machine Uh, anyone that goes to a Nipsey match will first be impressed by that, how fast the stages. And that kind of gives us that professional caliber, right? Uh, no different than an umpire brushing off the home plate before every pitch or, you know, the, uh, in NFL, them wiping down the footballs and having it placed right on the line, right? It's, it's a well-oiled machine. And I noticed that the staff really takes heart to that. They, they want, not that our staff doesn't, but there's like a different culture there. There's a different breed. And I saw range masters on staff that I didn't even notice we were off pace. But, you know, I'm like, hey, we're running great. And next thing you know, I see him getting into them saying, hey, you're about a 30 seconds off pace. Let's pick it up before it came a problem. Right. And that's something that, um, you know, I know there are great match directors that do it, but it, it's exhausting. And we ran just to give you an idea how efficient this state match ran. We ran 10 stages in a half day format. Good Lord. Unbelievable, right? I ran 30 stages in, in three days. I was out on the range by like 8.30, out by before 11.30, 10 stages shot. And they were not short stages, no classifier type stages. Um, they did double up some bays, and that was probably the more impressive part. The double up bays are actually the quickest bays. Um, I would say, you know, they didn't have a popper calibration issue. <laughs> a little, a little well, that's there. because there's no wind in europe <laughs> yeah they, they did have a few big poppers but a lot of the steel they used was knockdown steel you know they kind of just it's kind metric of away. Yeah. it's because it's metric <laughs> and you use nine millimeter which is yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah but i can tell there's also so so that's one thing the efficiency which the matches are run, uh the staff uh, how professional they take it uh, which is, and then they also incorporate you know youth to help them out with the workload there. the The second thing was probably the movers are much more challenging in Ipswich. I mean, we're talking over the top swingers at thirty yards. Um, you know we're talking, there was one stage, we had three different movers. We had the zip line, We had a drop down and a swinger. And you know that was very challenging. So the timing sequences there, uh, they do a lot of steel over the tops um, or steel bobbers, but the movers are on another level there. And that's something for world shoot that I know I'm getting ready to work hard on, um, it, you know, is, is movers uh, because those timing stages can, can add up, you know, they're usually smaller stages, but you can believe 10, 15 points and those start adding up quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would say movers, the, the efficiency and how many stages they can clear in a half day or day format um, you know, they don't throw a lot of partials. They have a hidden way of making open target seem like a partial, if that makes sense. Like, you know, if you, if you have to exit on an open target at 20 yards, there's a lot of people that will start bleeding deltas, right. Or they're going to stay there and bleed time. So like, they don't have to throw a lot of partials in there. Uh, so, you know, the other thing that I noticed was the weather I'm in Virginia and I hate the, the sweat and the grip i like a good purchase so you know i can chalk up like christian sailor and look like a like a you know olympian getting ready to do a vault or something but over over yeah over there there's
2: there's no humidity
1: so like i was like hey i don't have to use pro grip so uh, i think that's you know that company probably sells more, majority of their product here in the states
2: but that was and, an i noticed that as a shooter and thailand shoot's gonna be yeah that'll be fine yeah did, did you well, ever get
0: <laughs> did you ever make it to Southeast Asia during your time in the Marines Matt
1: uh, I did not no okay I have been yeah. in, in the law enforcement side but not okay yeah
0: I've been to the Philippines and I know it's just like Thailand and holy guacamole Batman
1: yeah Woo. on and off rain too here and there but yeah I'm yeah. we'll be ready Try for being it
2: fat I yeah. want to hear it from you guys ooh <laughs> look at me I'm fit yeah this guy suffers uh, three showers a day. <laughs> So when,
0: when did you first start shooting guns at what age was that?
1: Uh, the United States Marine Corps. Um, oh, you know, wow. and yeah, I had never picked up a gun. Uh, I did boy scouts shot the bow. I can't remember shooting one in boy scouts. I never got there. Um, I wasn't an Eagle scout like Mason, but uh, yeah, I never got to the, the, the weapon. And you know, the interesting thing in, in the Marine Corps, as you know, I had to wear corrective glasses cause you go through a, a immense, uh, medical study, you know, and review, and I never wore glasses as a kid. I played sports, um, baseball and stuff. I just never wore it. But in the Marine Corps, I said, you need glasses. And when I put them on, I'm like, Oh, I didn't even realize to see far away. I didn't need glasses. And the one thing is though, it made me dizzy. I don't know if I've been doing sports and stuff. So I couldn't run in the Marine Corps with the glasses on. And when I got to boot camp, they didn't give me the option of wearing them sometimes or, you know, you know, uh, it was either you had to wear them or you didn't wear them at all. There was no on and off. And I made the conscious choice not knowing that, you know, I was going to have to qualify with the weapon or at least thinking ahead. I was thinking more about all the PT we were doing, saying, I can't wear these, so I put them away in the lockbox. I can never wear them. Well, that hit me hard when we went to the range, and you're looking at 500-yard shots with iron sights. And I said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I, gotta, I can't wear these glasses, but I got to pass. So I – Focus so hard on every fundamental, like I put my whole heart into it and every instruction, to the point where, you know, a lot of people were passing, but I'm sitting there Indian style, you know, in our sitting position with a pencil, holding it out, focusing on the front sight tip, right, just getting my eyes to concentrate on the details of the front sight posts. Like while we weren't on the range, and you know, I ended up, ended up winning a class high in my in my boot camp, went on shoot my first pistol and security forces one class high there mainly because I was able to focus on the fundamentals um where it got a little more fascinating was when I went on to my my next uh MOS uh security forces or fast company and we had to do more CQB and more dynamic shooting and I had an advantage there but uh, I just expanded on it so that was that was kind of my first time picking up a weapon wow yeah okay Le- late in life
2: all because you didn't want to wear some birth control goggles.
1: Yeah. I'll fast forward. If anyone's on my Instagram, I already have my two-year-old uh, learning how to be target-focused. So I cut out something I learned from Phil Strader and Ron Francisco, who, you know, have kids, As I cut out the A-Zone, and I already got them practicing shooting Nerf darts through the A-Zone. And I'm hoping by next year, I'm going to get a swinger, and I'm going to teach them how to track the A-Zone with a Nerf gun. It's going to – I'm going to – he's – not going to be like me, 18 years old, first time picking up a, a weapon. He's he's going to be 10 going to his first match and beating me and Leo. Yep. <laughs> this is why I love – Not a high guys, bar, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys seen those new link belts?
2: Uh,
1: uh, um, no. You can kind of piece them together like Legos. Double Alpha has them out. I'm not trying to put a plug oh, in there, but the cool – the cool, Yeah. J- uh, Jay Lee's Williams, I think, was just demoing one. The cool thing about it is I can get one for my, my son at two. He'll never have to buy another belt. I just every year buy him an extra link. I mean, it's pretty cool. It's wow. one belt for the rest of his life.
2: Yeah. I just caught up. I'm like, link. Uh, I I that's sorry. Brilliant. I okay. It's like yeah. Legos. yeah, yeah. It's
1: brilliant. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha, brilliant. gotcha. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Or as I put on weight in the next 10 years, you know. I, I mean, that's what I was thinking about. So <laughs> it's fine. Uh,
0: so what What led you to join the Marines?
1: You know, I, I, that, that's a tough one. You know, no, you're the first person in my career to ever ask me that, believe it or not, which is a common question, but, um, you know, I was big into teams, uh, sports, you know, and that camaraderie, I think that caught on. And I was also, I grew up playing guns as kids, you know, where you run around with like toy guns and stuff like that. So I kind of, I love GI Joe and all that stuff. Um, so I think it was a breed between the two, just kind of having, I wasn't afraid to get muddy and dirty, probably saw an ad on TV and it put a bug in my ear and say, Hey, I can have the same kind of camaraderie there. And I first wanted to fly planes, but because of my vision, um, I couldn't do that. So I went in the Marine Corps under the notion that I might be able to fly helicopters. Um, But they couldn't guarantee you that MOS um, at the time. Um, So I I said, okay, you know, so that, so I went infantry, Got security forces, but I had to also have shooting quals at a higher level for security forces. That also kind of inspired me to focus a little bit more on that aspect in my basic training. Um, but I think it was mainly because of the camaraderie. I've always loved being having a close group of friends and, and you know that you can rely on and kind of go through life on. And I think that's extended in the USPSA now. I have probably my best friends are in the shooting community. I mean, we talk every day on chat forums and stuff like that. Um, and, and they're jokesters. Um, and and it's pretty cool. So I'd say that's why the camaraderie same thing with law enforcement, um, and, and, and my agency, because they're so connected to DOD. So I get it on both sides the military and law enforcement, uh, which we, we recently just saw, uh, which was amazing with officer Gonzalez. We had the joint chiefs actually sent, you know, the vice chairman went, uh, to New York for his funeral. Uh, you know the military and, and the Pentagon really backed us and supported us. But then on the flip side, his brother was a, is an NYPD officer. Uh, the New York Police came out strong for him, and, and seeing that camaraderie would give should give anyone goosebumps uh, that we're a family and and we're there. And well, that's pretty cool when you can extend your family to kind of to that magnitude and that range. You know,
0: that's nice. Yeah. So did you go in open contract then? Nothing guaranteed
1: for the Marine Corps yes no I had I had fast company guaranteed with contingencies I had to be a first class physical fitness test uh, and I had to be a first uh, I had to be an expert um, or, or uh, on pistol and rifle I think actually just rifle for recruitment uh, but then I had past security forces so uh, which had pistol quals. so okay I, I focused heavy on my uh, physical fitness and, and shooting I just I was glued to my instructors you know in boot camp.
2: Now, I, I, I'm going to ask this because I know how Dave feels about the, the, the firearm I'm going to ask why, you about. Why are you going here, Leo? So did you have to uh, – what did you qualify for pistol on? Uh, the breda uh, Okay.
1: Yeah, I had the Bretta all through my career.
2: I don't know if you can tell by Dave's reaction. He's not a fan. Not a fan.
1: I'll be honest with you. I wasn't a fan either. Um I I shot clocks um, and I knew there was a simpler platform. And I also, in the Marine Corps, you find out very quickly what stress can do to you. Um, And I like the simple operation of of a pistol. Um, You know, I want to take human error out of any situation that could ever put my life in jeopardy, right? Or somebody else's. So uh, I think anybody who has been in operations will appreciate simplicity uh and reliability right and i've carried that over into my competitive career as well because like as you guys know one one gun go down and on a stage and that's your match and when you spend months on months preparing for a match at a high level it's the last thing you want to happen right and uh so yeah yeah
2: yeah definitely not a fan so i guess it's just the navy guys that like the beretta but they also like, like their one. names
1: on their ass, but that's a whole other yeah. story. <laughs> well, the, the navy, the navy had the Sig P 22 what two two six and eight. I mean, they, yeah. they, they had a lot of SIGs deployed when I was over there, which was a double single or
2: double action, only depending on what
1: variant they had. But
2: yeah, the DAC or whatever. Um,
1: yeah, that that was a nice weapon. I I, I like yeah. that more than the Beretta as well.
2: Yeah, but, my brother I mean, did the two two nine DAC in the Coast Guard. Yep. So, I'm not. I, there were things I
1: liked about the Beretta, but. I I think there were some better choices in my, in my time in the Marine Corps at the time.
0: Yeah, I concur. Now you got out in 2004, but what year did you go in?
1: 2000. Um, So I was fully trained right when nine 11 happened. In fact, I was in Newport news, Virginia. We had just got done playing games. For those of you that have not been in the military games is when your staff aren't just wants to put you in check. And our games were take everything out of our room Set it up in perfect size and alignment in the courtyard. Clean your room. Put everything back in your room. But before you do, you got to clean that to light white glove inspection. So we did that up until four in the morning. Uh, I forget why somebody did something. Um, I don't think it was me. But what I was upset about when (laughs) the way I found out 9-11 hit um, is we had our windows open because it just smelled like fumes because we had been cleaning all night, right? Uh, We had helicopters land in our courtyard. That's what woke me up. And I was immediately pissed off because dirt flew into my windows. And that is not an LZ. So my first, (laughs) yeah, you can imagine, right? Because I I was like, here we go, games again, right? (laughs) Yep. So I didn't know why they were landing. But my first thing was, are you freaking kidding me? I got out of my rack. I got on the deck. I'm about ready to wring a, a pilot's neck. Second, after that, once I calmed down, was why are there helos laying in our courtyard, which is not an LZ? I mean, it, it was an unmarked LZ, but not something we trained to, right? And next thing I knew, the third thing I looked at is my, as you can appreciate, my scout snipers, which we had attached to our teams, were running to the helicopters with their Alice packs. And now I'm like, you, you as a Marine don't need an order at that point. I started packing my Alice pack, waiting for my orders, right? You just, you fall in line. And what happened was we were deploying our scout snipers to New York because they're afraid of secondary attacks on the medical shelters. And uh, they deployed mm-hmm. in New York. They augmented our law enforcement there to pr- protect the medical shelters for secondary attacks. And then about three days later, we went to the, to the med to start taking down ships that we thought Al Qaeda refugees were hiding out on. And I did that for like a year straight on and off ship. Uh, we had the Navy seal, you know, would, would board these ships and then we would go on. They didn't have, the masses to sweep these massive oil tankers and the Marine Corps wasn't really big on CQB. They didn't have big teams on CQB. That's not how we were designed. So we were the first ones, we were the only ones capable of rapidly deploying with close quarter quarter tactics to take down naval ships of that size. Uh, So we would sweep the ships and we would port the ship and then investigators would come on. And I would say, okay, you know, we're, we're flipping through the, the deck of cards. Like, who do we get? And we never found out. We just go on to the next mission, right? And we didn't do that a lot. Some of them were protective operations, too, to protect U.S. ships in the med. Um, but then we came back to start training the larger fleet on close quarter tactics, right? Uh, because that was the modern warfare that we were about to experience. So you can just, like how I was trained in boot camp. You open a door, throw a grenade and then go clear it. That was no more, right? You got to actually use tactics. Uh, You can't throw that grenade in there. Maybe a flashbang, but, um, but even then uh, those were limited. So I didn't want to do that. So I went in, I said, how, how can I get overseas? You know, this may be my last year. I may come back in as an officer, but, and protection was the only thing they were offering. And that's, that's what I ended up taking.
0: How long does it take to clear an, an oil tanker?
1: Oh, all night.
0: Uh, so, I can imagine, you
1: know, to, yeah, it was, it was pretty much all night. We would go on with about 30 initially, uh, secure key areas that the seals had already secured, but we had fortify them. Uh, and then we go on with another 30, so 60 Marines. And I would say it would take about four or five hours to round everybody oh, up, zip wow. tie them, get them to a mass. I mean, and it's, probably the worst environment to do CQB. Cause the spaces are all, there are no blueprints, right? Like I can walk up to a house and say, that's a corner entry just by knowing the house, right? Somebody might have built a crazy room, but on an oil tanker, you have no idea what you're about to walk into. So every room is, is you have to use sound <laughs> tactics, right? So it, it, it just, you had to get, do it slow and methodical and it would take all, night. and you're doing it in, on, in the dark right? There's a lot of oil tankers so aren't going to have all the lights on and you're not going to get those lights on it's probably the worst environment to do close quarter combat that you can imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've gotten lost on our Naval ships being on deployment. I can only imagine an oil
1: tanker. Good Lord. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. We, we would get, we would get lost.
0: Holy cow. So what was your, uh, what was your
1: MOS, your primary MOS? So it was 0311 Um, you know, infantry, but I, I never spent a day in the fleet, and that was in part why I got out. Um, I was uh, eighty-one, fifty-two, Security Forces, Fast Company, which stands for Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team, and we are the we are positioned all over the United States, and our job. There's a bunch of them nowadays, but primarily was to fortify embassies if they get overran uh, anywhere within 24 hours, and sustain it if they you know choose to stay on the ground. The second thing was to uh, secure any nuclear assets that should happen to come up. So like the most famous one is, uh, the USS Cole, you know, that was bombed in port. Our job was to go there and secure that and help the Navy out. Right. That's, or a submarine if it should have to come up. Uh, so, you know, basically we focus on logistics and close quarter combat and in sensitive environments as well. Um, so I never went to the fleet. Uh, most people, it's a two-year billet. And then you go to the fleet usually as a corporal or something like that. I circled back in and then led a team as a corporal. And eventually I earned my Sergeant uh, before I got out, but I was going back to the fleet as a Sergeant, as you can imagine um, that was not going to be nice Uh, there. I was going to have Lance corporals that knew more about inventory than I did. I, I hadn't done land nav for instance, in four years. Right. So I just, I didn't want to set myself up for that. It just wasn't ideal. Right. And um, I knew I was going to have a, a hard time there. I could focus on my strengths, but that just wasn't going to be fair to the fleet as well. Um, so I was, my theory was get out, become an officer and go back in. And then I'd be, I'd be better, right? I'd even be stronger. I'd have both what we call a Mustang experience, uh, understanding the fleet, uh, and being able to lead at, a, 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 an amazing opportunity. Right. Um. Just things kind of went sideways there a, a little bit, um, but I'm still close uh, to the Department of Defense, as I repeated a couple times.
0: Right. So you got out in 2004. How did you tr- How did you transition to the job you have now?
1: Well, it wasn't easy. Going to college, um, you know, the work ethic that I had. I was like five classes. What do I do with the rest of my time? So I, I took a lot of classes and got through my degree. Uh, a little bit quicker, which my family appreciated too, because they were helping me out as well as the GI Bill. But, uh, you know, the Pentagon Force Protection Agency said, hey, you know, come here. Uh, It was a good center hub while I went through a couple other special agent um, announcements or job interviews, uh, which can take like a year, year and a half. And every time I thought about leaving my agency, they gave me another opportunity to grow. So I went from, you know, uniform division as a police officer to counterintelligence, and Tiger Trap, that was a book that was given to me to read in the academy there. Uh, and then I went to the special agent side and really uh, leveraged my Marine Corps
2: protection.
1: And kind of just kept, kept doing that. And you know, every time I thought about, all right, I've kind of capped this position out, I, I may have to lateral to another agency to keep growing. Uh, my agency has given me another opportunity. And I really like my agency. Um, it's unique that we're civilian. My family loves it. There's very few jobs in the special agent community. Like, you know, FBI, Secret Service, DEA, we're all the same. MOS, I guess, for Marine Corps sake, we're called 1811s. It's a job series, right? Um, But I'm one of the few that don't have to move. You know, uh, most agents, like the military, you you deploy to different cities over your career, right? Mine's permanent in D.C. And my family's from here, and they don't want to move. And um, I'm not complaining. We have one, I think, Area 8 which is largely DC and Northern Virginia is one of the best shooting communities in the world. Cause I have my picks of matches every weekend. You know, I have two or three matches and I talked to some of my friends they are like, I have to travel two hours, one day a month, you know, for one match. And, you know, I, I have some aspirations actually to help USPSA. I know Cy was saying it's a volunteer sport and we need more people to help. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about running for area director, Uh, And maybe higher up, I've been talking a lot with Matt Hopkins and people. And one of the things I want to do is, uh, you know, to kind of give a loot if I choose to run is help local clubs develop, Uh, help more clubs, because I see what that means in area Eight, where we have our selection of clubs that I can pick meaning, do I shoot this match this weekend, 45 minutes away, or do I shoot this one 30 minutes away? I, I see. That's not the case everywhere else. And I think with an influx of USPSA growing one, we need that. that. That is the product, right? We shouldn't have 30-man squads. It's not a great experience for anyone. It's a big-time commitment. Then you spend all day with your family, whereas I'm home by a late lunch, you know, from a match. Um, so I really want to – I think USPSA should be obligated to help young clubs come up more so. Not that they haven't done a good job. I just think uh, fresh blood in there to kind of pour lighter fluid on helping young clubs is something that I might be able to help out with.
0: Okay. Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, where did you go to college and what degree did you get?
1: I went to Xavier University. Uh, we're a small little Jesuit school in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I went there because I had some friends that went there. And, um, you know, I, I, I played rugby with them. And it was a, a fun experience. And I got my degree in criminal justice.
2: Okay, Catholics don't mess around with education, Dave. <laughs> no. Nope. And the Jesuits were the warriors of the Catholic church. I'm just putting that out there and just, just saying
1: yeah, that basketball team puts as much time in a, academics as they do into the basketball court. Um, you know, they, they have to live on campus. There are no fraternities. Um, they have, you know, tutors if, if they need it. I mean, it's amazing. It's a I can, like you just said, they put more time into their education than they do actually basketball And my, when I at least went there uh, and that's saying something cause they're, constantly in the big tournament and stuff like that so
2: they are yeah i went to catholic school my whole life so i, I completely understand yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: i appreciate I come out of the marine corps where you know my work ethic i was a little bit older and i was all about business at that point not necessarily uh, an experience per se right. you know which which is great i think kids should enjoy college and, and the experience and have fun because life only gets harder after that truth for sure yeah.
0: all right so you got out In 2004, you went to college, you got your degree, then you started working for the DOD. The Pentagon,
2: yeah.
0: How and when did you stumble across the USPSA, your current addiction?
1: So, yeah, it was probably my second year in uniform division, and we only got to train twice a year, and that training usually involved a qualification, and that was a higher standard than most law enforcement agencies, just so you know. Um, maybe not the Department of Defense, but law enforcement agencies, you know, some only get to shoot once a year. And I was like, what? Because coming from Fast Company, I pretty much, I didn't even have to unbox ammo. It was just big ammo cans of free loose ammo. It was to the point where your finger hurt, you can stop shooting, you know, like that was just an anomaly to me um, or, um, um, you know, weird to me or unusual that I, I can only shoot twice a year. And how am I going to stay proficient, you know, to the levels that I'm used to? So right at the same time, I had an uncle pass away, and I didn't own a firearm other than my agency firearm at that time. You know, the Marine Corps, they gave us all the fun toys. Um, So I inherited a Remington 700, and you're going to appreciate this, Dave. I had a classic 700, probably from the 60s, maybe 50s, or whatever. It was an original, never shot, still had the packing grease on it, not rusted. And I said, what am I going to do with this? I'm not big into hunting at the time. It's my first gun that I own. Uh, I inherited it. I said, you know, it'd be cool to build a Marine Corps sniper rifle. I was never on the sniper team. Even my our snipers weren't they didn't have M24s or I think that's what you used, right? M um, yeah M forties. We didn't have those. We actually had mark um uh what are the Mark fourteens, right? Um that were converted into designated marksman rifles, right? Right, so the M
0: fourteens,
1: yeah. Precision rifles with a scope, right? That's what they use because it was more from urban environment for our our needs, right? Um, so I, I I was I was just curious. I was like, I always thought you know Marine Corps snipers were amazing. It's our elite team of the Marine Corps, so it's kind they of like rooting for your. It is right. <laughs> it's like rooting for your basketball team or football team if you go to Ohio State, right? You you root for them. They're your tier tier one team. They're they're kind of the creme de la creme, right? So I was like, it'd be cool to build what they had. And I had Quantico in my backyard. So I'm like, I can go shoot it there. They got a thousand yard range. I can still get on base. So I was like, I that was my opening to guns. I was like, all right, what do I need? A barrel. I called up the guy who makes the uh, Schneider barrels and I'm like, hey, can I get a barrel? And he's like, no. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean no? I'm a customer. He's like, well, I'm making a Marine Corps line right now. It'll be eight months. I'm like, eight months? I was like, I'm not doing a deployment. I just want a barrel. (laughs) And you're laughing because you know, it's a whole nother culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I started talking to him. I'm like, I'm a Marine. I think he felt bad for me that I didn't know anything about this world that I was getting to. So he said, "All right, if you can wait eight months, I'll build you one. And at the time I'm like, thanks.
2: But that was a pretty (laughs) cool thing that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. So <laughs> it's a horse in the mouth much. I know. And later
1: on I learned, I'm like, all right, this is all this guy does. He doesn't really do anything else. Like, I'm like, okay, now I have like the holy grail barrels, right? Um, or one of them. Right. So I'm like, I need a stock. I called manners up for like six months. I'm like, what is going on here? I just want to buy this six months. I'm gonna wait forever. Um, so I, I had a lot of patience, and then I had war rifles, which is a bunch of Uh, In Virginia, it's a small company, a bunch of, a lot of them are Marine Corps armors that, you know, kind of left and went there and that's all they do is precision rifles. I had them build me the rifle. So I'm telling you this because I went to Quantico and I shot this thing and it was really cool. I had the Marines help me break it in. I knew nothing about breaking in a barrel. What? I was like, oh yeah, you got to break this thing in. Um, So I had this beautiful, which I still have to this day, which I have not shoot anymore because the ammo is so expensive to make, but um. I had this beautiful rifle and I'm like, I just want to shoot a thousand yards. I just think that's cool. Um, And the Marines helped me out. They got me on target, which I was telling you earlier, Dave, I was like, those rifles will shoot themselves. You're going to shoot a quarter group. If you have good fundamentals, it's that's not what makes a sniper a sniper. What makes a sniper is being able to get it on the first shot. And I'm like, that is possible. I still don't know how you guys do that. I mean, we're talking about wind Anybody that knows anything about the the shooting community, there's there's so much to calculate. It's like a science project every shot. It's um, witchcraft, is what it is. It, it's 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 a whole another world, right? You could dedicate your life to it. So I have a lot of appreciation for what you, do, Dave. But um, so yeah, so I tell you that because all of a sudden I heard a bunch of popping in the background of Quantico, and I said, "What's that?" You know, are or, or I figured it was like the Marines training or something, and I was just I was missing it. I said, oh, it's a USPSA match. And I said, "USP? what? <laughs> and they said, you know, it's a pistol match. And I was like, oh, are they competing? Like, can I go watch? And they said, sure. So I get there and I'm like, it's a bunch of civilians. They're not even in the military. I'm like, yeah, it's open to the civilians. I'm like, I've been looking for this. I've been looking for this to augment my law enforcement training. So I, I said, what do I need? They said, you know, five mags, mag pouch. Here are the divisions I kind of read up a little bit. I bought a Glock 34, got five mags because I had a Glock for the agency. And I said that's the closest thing I can maybe be competitive with, and also have the same training for my duty gun, right? Um, I went to the match, and I mean, the story was really you guys know how that went, right? Yeah, uh, Mike Mike here, 40 second stages. Uh, I'm just like, what, what is happening? I'm watching this 16 year old female phenon like a, you know, Jay Lee's just blasted down. Two things happened there. One, I knew my standards in life were not, not even calibrated correctly. The military doesn't, you know, doesn't even understand this. Maybe tier one elements get that kind of training, but I didn't. And I was pretty close to that level. Right. Uh, as, far as training goes, um, two, there are civilians out there that can shoot this level at this level that I, I may be asked to one day neutralize, right? And law enforcement to protect the community. And I said, I have to get to this level. I, I have to, it's not fair to the community. It's not fair to me or my family
2: to, to see this, know it,
1: and not do something about it. So the story was written. I, I kind of dug in, mainly from a skills standpoint, not competitive at the time. I didn't really aspire to be a national champion. And, and then and then that's also how I met Dave Wampler. Um, that's a very interesting story. On my second well, – oh, my first match, I met Phil and Ron Francisco. Phil Strader and Ron Francisco. And I went up to them. I didn't know who they were, but I noticed they shot very well. And there was a Texas star, and I said, how do you shoot this? And they were so nice. They were like, hey, here are a couple different options. Don't worry about it. If it starts to move, you know, it might be worth just leaving it. If you just have one plate, you know, the way time and scoring works. And they were awesome. And Ron ended up being my first instructor when I started taking it uh, seriously. Um, and it was great to get Ron the Rocket. You should have him on the show sometime because he's got some classic footage. His wife's is a world champion. Um, and Phil's just a jokester. So he also, you know, it was great to meet him. And he's still a friend to this day. Um, but that's how I met Dave Wamper at my second match. And he asked me, how do I shoot this? I'm like, me? I'm just getting into this. Um, <laughs> but I gave him my phone number and his dad was my special agent in charge, the director, because I had to write my phone number on a business card. It's all I only piece of paper I had in my bag. And when he flipped over, he said, Oh, do you know my dad, John Wampler? I was like, yeah, that's my director. And the story is written. Dave became my training partner for like three years. And Dave is what made me start thinking about it competitively because Dave came from the racing world of competitive racing, like with vehicles. And Dave, I came out from law enforcement, but when we were training together, I really, he inspired me, right? He pushed me into, well, what if you take it from a competitive angle? That's what I'm doing. And that was, that was written. Dave and I started traveling all over the country, uh, shooting together and, and learning as we went. We didn't really have a lot of national champions to really lean on other than Ron Francisco at the time, who's in our area, um, and, and Jerry Tetreault, who's Mason's biggest mentor in the, in the shooting world. Um, and they're, you know, both law enforcement. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of became the start of it, uh, you know, back in 2014. Okay.
0: <clears throat> wow. Second, that's funny.
1: Yeah. So it's crazy how the, the community circles back into the rest of your life, right? For me. Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. It's funny you bring up Ron because Dave was saying that Ron kind of pointed him the direction, and we talked yeah. about this a little bit last night about using, moving to open to increase his production abilities with a dot. Correct. So,
1: correct. I've I've been talking a, a lot on that um, actually. So because the world sheet's been pushed, and like Jay Leeson and the Williams sisters said, you know it's been pushed. So you got to recalibrate what you're going to do and. uh, I talked to Ron about it. Ron initially didn't want me to switch because we thought it was going to just be pushed like February or something like that early on. He said, Matt, you need to focus right now is not the time. And I didn't understand till now uh, how much there entails the setting up an open gun. I think that's what he didn't want me to be distracted by that. Um, mm. And Ron knew uh, my strength is movement. I focused a lot with Mason on that. So um, I, I don't think he wanted to, but Eric Raffel wanted me to. He said, no, this is the most complimenting two divisions is open and production open focuses on your speed of vision and movement, um, and, and timing and production will focus on your fundamentals. There's no way around it. Otherwise you're going to have a bad, bad day or bad year. Right. And he said, that's why he shoots the two back and forth. Uh, if anyone knows Eric, Capel, you know, probably the goat in our time. Never heard of him. Uh, <laughs> right. Um. So I'm very, you know, that's the amazing thing about Eric too. You know, he's up on this pedestal, but he has the time to talk to people like me. Who I I met him at Extreme Euro, uh, and stuff like that. But he doesn't know me that well, and I don't know him that well. But he takes the time to talk to me when I ask him a serious question. He's the one that first put that out in one of a podcast that he was doing about open and production complimenting each other. But he didn't go into the details of why, and he really helped answer that for me. And now with World Shoot getting pushed, I have that opportunity. And CZ's been great helping me at least set up the open gun to save that time and give me, you know, years of, of tests and trial and error. Uh, so Matt Hopkins and Caleb, um, you know, have really helped me out, get my open gun running in less than 30 days So a pretty competitive wow. level. Yeah. That yeah, is there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to get going between optics, uh, how your hands fit on it, the tuning of the mags, getting the load dialed in, and you know, like Candy Lane, they gave me the shortcut. Uh so I, you know, looking at it, I probably would not have done open because of how much time it takes to set up a gun if it wasn't for them too.
0: Candyland. Matt's favorite <laughs> yeah. game. That's my favorite board <laughs> game in case
2: in there case you want go. to throw in your
1: sixth question for openers. There you go. Oh, I hadn't
0: even thought of that. That's a good one.
2: Yeah, but you can't ask yeah. like a uh, Justine and Jaleese Williams favorite board game. I don't even think they know what a board game is because they're so young. You know what I mean? Like that's us old people. Yeah. yeah. I didn't I like play board games, games.
1: Mm-hmm. not once Dryfire came out about, you know. <laughs> 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 that is your game now. Yeah. yeah.
0: So So I, I – because we're in the same area, I can – I started shooting – I I ran across USPSA totally by accident. I was like, well, that looks pretty good. I'm going to go try it. Um, And I remember, I've seen you around now for the three years, whether it's Fredericksburg. uh, I'm pretty sure I've seen you at Cavalier. Uh, I know I've seen you up at Shadowhawk. But um, it seems like lately you've really increased your tempo. Is that by design?
1: It is. Um, so I, you know, I have a two year old now and, um, at some point my training is going to be committed to him. So I asked my wife, I said, Hey, I want to make one, maybe two runs at a world shoot and seeing what I can be the best. And that's, I mean, nationals are there. Areas are there. I've, I've been very close a lot, but I, I said everything I've been doing has been for a world shoot to see what, how I stack up against the best in the world. And, uh, like Mason says, You know while the ultimate goal is to be the champion what i really want to do is go there and be the best version myself i think winning being the champion is right now um you know that's just the test Uh, once you go there the story's written all you have to do is focus on being the best version yourself and the time that you put into it will determine whether or not you're the champion or not right so i I got a slot to go i'm hoping it still stays true Um, i'm actually happy that it got pushed because it just gives me more time to train um uh, it's a big commitment away from my family. So my family has given me the time to train at a high level. Um, I kind of know what I need to do. I haven't been able to do it yet, mainly because of ammo consumption now. Now I have the time. Now now it's ammo consumption. But um, I have not gone into a national championship fully prepped um, in the last three years yet because everything's been for world shoot. Um, and I want to peak at that point in time. So having it in April with only 50,000 rounds, you know, which is a lot, but not for World shoot. I was like, I, I can't use 10, 15,000 to get prep for Nationals. I have to save it for maybe this month to September leading into World Shoot, right? Um, Cause that's when I want to peak, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, so I was really proud to finish, um, you know, and you know, in, in, I, I forget what I finished, but like 20 or something like that. And I know I'm right there and I know it's just consistency Um, that I lack and I know that'll come once I ramp up, uh, but may I have had a lot of good mentors Uh, that are very close friends really get me to that level and I know they're excited to see where I can What I can do and they're professionals. They get to train a little bit more than I do. So they're they're. But that's you know, Mason Lane Once Kim, Casey Reed are probably the three that I shoot with the most Um, and then I have Ron Francisco and Dave Wampler here in the rear and I got Phil Strader still there, um, you know, helping me probably the most with the mental game. To so always don't forget to have fun while doing it and save your best for the test. Um, but yeah, and, and Jerry Tetro, who recently just moved, which I was kind of sad about. But I, I have all the, the, the tools around me and the time and the ability to go to the world shoot and represent, you know, the United States well, uh, whether I'm on a team or not and i'm excited and i'm going to be able to travel with those friends that i just mentioned right um which is only going to give me a strength i see that as an asset because i'm going to have my mentors right beside me uh, on this long journey you know i think it's like what four or five days shooting a world shoot so i'm looking forward to it i I think next year i'm going to try and get a couple more international matches in kind of giving me that experience there's a lot going on with that versus different time zones you know different languages culture just getting familiar with that uh, so I'll probably try and do Extreme Euro. I know United States is out. I was signed up for like three or four IPSC matches here in the states from the Hangdong World Shoot. Extreme was coming here. I think those are great matches for anyone looking to, to look at IPSC. Um and I think uh I think you should try them out. They're usually bigger matches like three or five day formats so it's a bigger commitment but uh, definitely maybe worth sacrificing a couple of smaller matches to, you know, if you if it's a time thing for you to go do those so It's a it'll open your eyes and then when you go overseas You'll you'll kind of understand the IPSC format because there are some rule changes, right? Um, but yeah, so everything's been for world shoot um, and, and that's what's clicked and I know I only have maybe one or two world shoots to run before it's my son's time you know run around with the next gen and, and, and then for me, I'll kind of digress and just have fun with it. So when you have that time constraint and you have goals, you know, the Marine it's Corps mentality time. is it's crunch time. Go all yeah, in. And that, that's what sucks. The end thing sucks because I would be shooting more. Uh, but there are things you can focus on that I think are just as important. So I've been focusing a lot on strategy, movement, uh, and vision, which I don't need to shoot live. Um, you know, live is more of a timing thing. Um, and validating your training but i kind of can i can if you train and do dry fire as a part of your regiment um you can kind of learn you know if, you, if your dry fire is where it needs to be and if those are going to produce the results um but yeah i i hope ammo pricing comes down it looks like it it's it looks like it's coming down a little bit i knock on wood um so that'll that'll help in the off season what it may mean is i just don't take an off season i just start you know, getting back up to speed and off season so I can hit spring full, full steam ahead. Okay.
0: So you're the first guest we've had that didn't talk about, you know, being, going to nationals and being a national champion. You're talking about the world shoot and comparing yourself yeah. to everybody in the world. Now, I'm, I'm sure there had to have been some things that you brought back from Extreme Euro. You're like, I have got to practice
1: these things
0: in order to perform well at the world shoot.
1: Yeah, 100%. The The biggest thing coming out of Extreme Euro for me was the mental game. It's a longer match. There's ups and downs. You're shooting 10 stages. Can you so, – I've seen people and including myself, like I it is taking me a whole stage to calm down. Right. So I can show you data where I can say, Hey, guess what stage I had a bad experience on and what stage I calmed down on. And you'll see, Oh, you know, you, you went from, you know, winning the stage to 50th and then you were 50th again, 40th. And then you went back up to winning the rest of the match. Right. Like you can see my mental and Mason really saw that. And I worked on that hard and, Probably the biggest compliment I got from Mason is after extreme Euro, I had a couple of bad stages. I had one where I threw four shots on a large popper at like 30 yards and it just crushed me because it was a, it was a soft exit. I wanted to leave. So you're doing this back and forth. Yeah. Movement. Um, I hate that. <laughs> and the very next <laughs> yeah. stage, I hate it. Right. The yeah. very next stage I responded and had, I was right back to where I was. And I think Mason saw that. And he said, Matt, you that's the mentality you need. If you want to you want to be a champion. And that's not easy. When you're doing a stage like every 30 minutes versus every hour in USPSA, if you have a mental breakdown overseas in a national or in an international setting, you'll have five, six stages gone, like just demolished, right? Whereas in USPSA, it may just be one stage because you've, you've had two hours to recover mentally, right? So like, yeah, like Jake Hetherington said, I, I kind of, I truly, if I, have a, if I have a bad experience, I've learned not to compound it, right? I don't make up time. Um, if, I, if, I, if I felt I threw a mic in that stage, I can mentally start focusing on art. I need my points because I shoot production, right? And, and I, I may lose a second on that stage as well with that mic, but I'll have all alphas for the rest out. Um, and that helps me overcome that, that mistake. I only had one mistake. So never compound mistakes in, if you want to be a champion. And you'll watch like a JJ or Mason, They'll have mistakes, but they're not going to have three mistakes on a stage, right? So the damage is absorbed in the aggregate, right? Um, not in that stage. So that's one thing. And then mentally, like Jake Hetherington says, I give myself maybe thirty seconds to reflect on it and be mad because we're human beings, right? So, you know. But right after that, uh, I have cues that I've learned. I'll usually you'll see me. I'll walk off the stage when I'm loading my mags, um, and I'll look at the next stage. And that helps me visualize focusing on what's ahead, not what's behind me. Uh, so you'll see me do that if I have a bad stage. I'll just take all my mags, all my ammo, and I'll walk to the next stage and I'll set up on the next stage while I watch other shooters shoot and I, I don't even think about it. And then I and I've learned through experience shooting a lot more majors in a season, like 15 to 16, lets you let you start to gain that experience of saying the match isn't going to be one on one stage. So coming the biggest thing has been mental for me, and, and I could talk your whole show on, on some of the things that these great shooters have taught me uh, mentally. Um, some of the biggest actually is after a first day of being able to relax, not necessarily dig into the scores. Right. Um, you know, just, just have fun. You know, if you shot in the morning, the afternoon's not about prepping for day two. You know, if it's a three day format, usually day two, we starting to look to make adjustments. Uh, but that strategy is a mental game as well. Uh, and I've had a lot of, professional shooters teach me the, you know, that aspect, um, to, to the aspects of the strategy that Eric Rafael plays on people. You know, we've been talking a lot about that on a world stage of you're shooting now five days. How does, how does Eric attack that strategy? And it's very fascinating because now it's a whole nother level. So yeah. Um, I realize I don't have the ammo, the time to shoot maybe as much as Mason or wants a Kim or Ben Stoker, right? It's not a career for me. So how do I be the best version of myself? Well, I first had to ask, what's my goal? My goal is world shoot. Well, if nationals is in April, why should I peak for nationals when my goal is world shoot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so once world shoot came in my head, nationals matters. It's a great test. There's not a greater pressure I can have on the states, right, to, to really put all my um, skills to test. So it does matter. Don't get me wrong. I go into it. Uh, just like I would a world shoot, but I realized that my skills might not be as refined as I would want them to be. And I accept that. I accept that. Right. And my expectations come down just a little bit to where I know I can be. And I don't get discouraged by it. Actually, I get motivated. I'm like, man, I look back at nationals last year and I was thrilled with how I placed because I, I had moments where I'm like, the time is the time that I'm putting in is really paying dividends and I'm I'm excited to see when I have a full workup where I can be. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Now, when when we when we chatted before, you mentioned something um, about when to peak, and for world yeah. shoot, you were saying um, you were being told about September is when you want to peak. But my question no. for that is: I always look at it as like a a peak is a very the very tip. So the only place to go is down from there. And if world shoots late November, beginning of December, are, are you, are you guys talking about peaking and plateauing and then coming down after world shoot or how does
1: that work? So there are a lot of factors there. Um, first is mentally not to get burnt out. Right. Yeah. Everybody's unique and I can't give you a mapped out calendar. So this is where my mentors come into play. Right. Um, You know, we, we talked, we just actually just spent the last month talking about this with Mason and, and, and and Kim, you know, about how my strategy is going to set for this year. Right. Uh, so one's mentally, and that doesn't just involve shooting. Um, it could be your life work, you know, what's going on at work, you know, is the quality really there in your training because you're burnt out at work, you know, or is it worth saving some of that time and, and being a little bit more rocks, you know, lowering your ammo quantity and things like that. Uh, so one's mental. Um, two is ammo consumption, which just became a thing. Right. And that's why I was saying September was probably more that Mark was more based on ammo consumption. Um, and then three is how much time do you have and and what skills should you be focusing on? Right. I'm not gonna. Uh, so like right now I have a whole season, so why not shoot open and and focus on my vision and movement and pick those skills up before I have to go back to production, right. And hone in on that weapon platform. Right. So for me, I have, there's a lot that goes into it and this world shoot will probably be different from my plan from last world shoot. Right. Um, so for instance, I was going to take last winter. I took off time. That was for me mentally it was for my family because they knew I was, I was going to have a ramp up and I was going to be taken away from my family. So we were going to go do things. So we we're going to go to Disney world. We we're going to go travel. I was going to spend more time at home with them because I knew I was going to be taking away time from them as I got into those later months, leading up to world shoot. Right. Um, the the second thing was ammo consumption. I had enough ammo to do a pretty good workup leading up to world shoot, but not in the beginning. So I was sh- ideally I would probably want to shoot three times a week. It doesn't ammo doesn't really matter. I, I just take I just want to take ammo to the range and not have to worry about it. Like based on my, all right, today I only got 30, 40 minutes because it was hot and I'm tired. All right, go home. I shot 300 rounds. It doesn't matter. To me, it's about how long I can focus the quality of my training, right? There are times where I can spend three hours at the range with Dave Wampler because we're going back and forth and we're shooting a ton of rounds because we're working on something with a high high round consumption like doubles or something, you know, um, which is a drill that um, wants to put out. So it doesn't – I don't like to put an ammo quantity on it. It's more about my time. And usually I get burnt out after an hour, to be honest with you. If I'm going past that, it's, it's usually not as productive. I'm doing it because maybe I don't have time later in the week because it's about to rain for the next four days. It's not really as productive, but I'm going to accept it. Um, but usually, I'm right around five to six hundred rounds. Well, I knew I was going to have to break that down to two to three hundred rounds. So my theory last year was instead of three times a week, I'm going to go maybe four or five times a week and go hundred to two hundred rounds, and, and break it down just to up my frequency, right? And from that, I'm going to get out of it is I'm going to be more effective on demand. I'm going to build my my cold starts. You know, the first two stages, I'm going to come out very strong, and I'm going to take that as an advantage. So, kind of always thinking the glass is half full in my training, right? Not going to let ammo consumption distract me. Um, Now, I think I can get back up to the ammo supply I want. So now I'm probably going to go back to a three-day format. I'm probably not going to take an off-season. I'm going to switch to production in my off-season because I'm coming from open. So I'm going to use my off-season to switch production. And if world shoots in the fall, um, you know, I'll, I'll probably start working up. Uh, to longer sessions, shoot a lot more majors. I'm going to shoot a lot more Ipsic matches next year. I, I might have to sacrifice some area matches and some local matches uh, to do that. Um, and to just make sure I have the train time. But all that could change because it works. So I got to stay flexible. But, yeah, there, there's a lot in the ramping up. But I would say the month out, um, I would say probably the – I would say September I like to ramp up because I also don't want my hands to get burnt out. Uh, my muscles will start getting tight and if anyone's worked up to that level they'll know your your body will actually start being com- become counterproductive even your vision um, so I want to take like a week or two off before I shoot or maybe I just shoot a little bit just drive for a little bit but I let my body recover um, and that's my arms my hands I can usually feel that in the off season to spring where I pick up the gun and I'm like wow my, my muscles are relaxed I, I can, I'm faster I'm I have a better indexing. So I want to I want to do that before World Shoot as well. I want to have time to take off. So that's why I said World Shoot's in November. September I want to peak because in October I'm going to start taking some time off to relax. You know, and maybe just getting the mental game right and just start visioning a great performance at World Shoot. And then getting, you know, all the logistics ready, get my family there, make sure they're happy. And then, you know, coordinate with my friends when they're going to arrive and not have to worry about training at them. Does that make sense? A- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of kind of like a
0: pre-deployment,
1: right? For the Marine Corps.
0: Right. You gotta get in the right mindset. Until next time.
2: Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.